with me to the book of James. We've been working our way through the book of James. We're in the fourth chapter. One of the disadvantages, I think, sometimes of our <clears throat> our methodology uh, is that even preaching through a book like this, uh, we we lose the continuity of a letter. Uh, in other words, James is writing a letter here. Uh, as he's writing it, the continuity of his thought from beginning to the end, he's writing to a conclusion and his, his mind is taking into consideration all that he's saying along the way. And sometimes I think when we break it up into series and messages, uh, which I don't know that what our alternative would be, uh, we can run the risk of losing that continuity of thought and, and really uh, lose some of the context. And by doing so, uh, I think sometimes we, we lose some of the import of what he's saying. Uh, verses 11 and 12 uh, are certainly uh, fall into that category. In fact, uh, those verses, uh, like many in the Bible, dealing with the subject of uh, speaking of one another are taken kind of in isolation. Uh, in fact, it's among some of those that we hear from uh, folks who are not even within the household of faith. Uh, you're judging me. And Jesus said, uh, judge not your brother. And we hear those verses brought to get to bear against us. So uh, I want to qualify what James says this morning by just reminding you what I believe James understands certainly is that there is a necessary speaking in the church. Uh, Paul, uh, in fact, named names. Uh, at times he called out individuals who had departed from the faith. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith or Diotrephes who loved the place, the first place in the church and he named names. He's speaking against individuals. Uh, certainly Jesus did say in regards to judging our brothers, um, but he commented how that we would pull the splinter out of a brother's eye with a log in our own. Well, he doesn't say, therefore forget about the splinter in your brother's eye. Uh, he says, remove the log from your own so that you might see clearly to be able to help him get the splinter out of his. So, so if you take what James says today to say that all speaking uh, in confrontation or against others is wrong, you missed James' point. In fact, this is where context is so helpful. So just as a brief review of that, in chapter 1, uh, we, we read about the trials, and I've been trying to hold that intention as we go through the book, but the trials and the joy uh, which we are to count, count it as we endure those. In verse 1 and 2, or 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, that's important because... Trials and temptations really usually involve outward pressures by which uh, the inward affections are agitated. Uh, whatever's not sound will come to the top. Uh, Hope gets these little packets of flavoring and we put them into water and, and I can't stand those because they don't dissolve in water. And they'll just fall right to the bottom of the of the bottle of water, but you have to agitate it. You have to 
exercise some outward force and stir it and shake it and shake it and shake it and it agitates uh, that, that sediment in the bottom. And so the agitation brings to the surface or brings to the top uh, elements involved and that's what trials does. Without trials you could have faith mingled with tradition, mingled with presumption, mingled with pre- uh, uh, presumptions about all sorts of things all mingled up together and, and you're able to go along pretty well uh, with that and assign to all that your, your whole world view faith. But then the pressure comes and it gets so much so outside that it begins to stir the inward man and all the affections get all agitated and things start floating around and, and, and in the agitation you begin to identify things that are not faith. And through trials, we count it all joy because through that pressure and through the agitation of those affections, we're learning to identify what is not an affection for God and for the truth of His Word and what is merely presumption. And we start jettisoning in those things. And through that endurance, our faith is made pure. And as that faith is purified, we are made complete, perfected as it were. We are brought to maturity. And so that's the context of this letter. So when James tells us in a moment, speak not evil against one another or speak not against one another, it's in the context of trials that may be agitating inclinations in us and stirring to the top affections that are not proper for those claiming Christ as their Savior. So don't hear this outside of that context. I don't know what you're going through today, but I can assure you that the trials and the temptations in your life, the more pressure they bring onto your life, the more it will agitate the affections. And you will even begin to question your own faith at times. Those are necessary things so that we might discern what is real and authentic faith, God-given faith, and what is presumption on our part, whether it's influenced by religious traditions or environments, or backgrounds, or personal experiences. That's important. Another reminder here of the context is in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and also in verses 12 through 13. But I do believe that the law that James is speaking here is not exclusively the, the Mosaic law, but he says twice in this letter, the law of liberty and the royal law. And so when you hear James speaking here of the law, I don't think we would do right to think immediately he's he's, he's speaking exclusively about the Mosaic law. James clearly understands that the believer is living under the the royal law, the the love of Christ ultimately. And I'll talk about that later, but don't overlook what what James has already said in regards to the love that ought to be among the brethren. By the way, let me say this so that I don't forget it in any way. But I do believe that most of the confusion and conflict and difficulties that we faced in the church in our generation is rooted in that we no longer know how to love. We've lost, we've lost the capacity for it. We've, we've somehow categorized it as some warm feeling and moved it away from the ground in Scripture that it has ultimately in Christ Himself. And because we've lost the ability to love one another, all the doctrines of the church, even church discipline, get manifested in ways that are unloving 
and therefore misinterpreted and hurtful, and therefore we jettison the doctrine because it has been hurtful in the church, i.e. church discipline, one of the most least practiced doctrines in all the church today. Not because we don't believe in church discipline, but because it's been practiced so much so without love that it has has become hurtful in the church and people are loath to be hurt by the church. So underneath this is love. And that's what James, I think, is really basing this whole letter on. The law of liberty and the royal law. Another context in chapter 1, verse 19 and 26, and again in chapter 3, verse 2, and then 5 through 10. But James has already spoken extensively regarding the tongue and the speaking with severe warnings and cautions in regards to that. In fact, in chapter 3 saying, be not many teachers simply because of the volume of the words you use and you will be prone to sinning with your words. Beware of being teachers or those who are involved in using many words. He goes on to describe the deadly nature of the tongue. It is a dangerous thing in your mouth, essentially is what James is trying to say to us. If you're going to sin in the church, you're going to sin first with your mouth. Rooted in a heart, obviously. It's interesting to me, the passage we're looking at today follows up what he's just been talking about. Conflicts and jealous ambition and all these striving in the church. And and all those things are outward manifestations. But it's almost as if he's saying, okay, so if you get that under control, you've not not been delivered yet. There's this little thing that still resides within within you and it's called the dangerous tongue. So when you hear his verse today, this passage today, don't exclude the warnings he's already given about speaking in general. It is a dangerous thing we do, and it should take great meditation and determination in regards to what we exercise our tongue to say to brethren. That's context. You might say to yourself, well, how would a man dare ever speak? How would you... Why would you dare ever speak? Well, we need wisdom, and he speaks to that already as well. Chapter 1, verse 5, and then again in 3, 17 through 18. He says of that wisdom from above, listen to this carefully, it is, both, it is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, producing good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. So if I say, okay, I need wisdom to guide this thing, then this thing ought to be speaking pure, with purity, with peaceableness, with gentleness, with reasonableness, with full of mercy, producing good fruit, unwavering and without hypocrisy. That's just a, sub, that's a sermon in and of itself right there. But James has already reminded us that we need wisdom. In early chapter 1, he says, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It's not within you. It doesn't originate within you. That's the context. Look outwardly from yourself. Don't trust your affections. Evaluate them according to the truth of God's Word and the wisdom of God and appeal for God for the wisdom by which the tongue might be managed. That's the context. If that's not serious enough, in chapter 4, verse 10... He speaks there right before this passage in regards to submission and repentance. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you at the proper time. So humility is the context, I think, for the whole letter. Every, every infraction or every violation of what James is laying down here is rooted in pride. Self-sufficiency, not looking to Christ, not looking to the Word, not looking to God in regards to the wisdom from above, but employing a worldly wisdom based upon our own personal experience. Humility is critical to managing the tongue, as he's already spoken to. He even warns us in one place, any man that does not bridle his tongue, his religion is useless. So dangerous and so unmanageable is the tongue as it were. So when he gets to this passage that we're looking at this morning, he's already warned us in regards to the speaking. It is a dangerous endeavor in general. And it is even more destructive perhaps within the fellowship of the church, especially when trials are coming. And maybe you've subdued the, the aggression and the conflict, but nobody has yet subdued the tongue. And we are, all of us, subject to this dangerous tongue. I was talking to somebody this week and they were made reference of how the book of James had been really convicting. Almost every message from the book of James has been really convicting. And I, and I said to them, I said, well, Sunday morning's message will be a shotgun blast because nobody in this room will be avoided. You will leave here with a pellet in you at least. Because I don't think any of us have learned to rightly manage the tongue. And so this is a shotgun blast for us all. The church should feel the weight and feel the concussion of that shot this morning of the truth of God's Word across the bowels, as it were, of our heart. So having given that context, now let's read what James says. In chapter 4, 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren, King James uses the word evil. Some other translations do not speak evil against one another, brethren. And listen carefully to what he says here. He who speaks in this way or against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. There's only one lawgiver. And judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And he concludes with this stunning rebuke. But who are you? Who are you who judge your neighbor? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would grant me clarity of thought and speech to proclaim the truths that you have impressed upon me this week through this word. And Lord, I pray that we would not take it lightly. Our tongues and our speaking is not something that is just indifferent. They're not negligible words, words for the wind, as Job calls them. They're not words that have no matter or meaning. In fact, the scriptures warn us that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. And so, Father, I pray that we would feel the weight of the truth of this word this morning and, and be reminded ourselves of how we ought to love one another. We ask these things in Christ's name for his sake and glory. Amen. 
the first passage in verse 11 is just a simple admonishment. Uh, the kids uh, Sunday school, we're at the same place we are in the preaching here, uh, can kind of converge with this. And I just wanted to reiterate that. There is a simple, really a simple admonition here. Everything is explanatory and even consequential of that. But the simple, the simple exhortation here is, brethren, speak not evil of one another. We could dismiss, say a prayer, go out of this place, and all of us would be obligated to follow that mandate. We have no business speaking evil of one another. Even if there is a proper speaking and a necessary speaking involved in church discipline or accountability between brethren, there is, that is not an evil speaking for it has the brethren's restoration and good in mind. And even that ought to be hazarded upon with great caution for we are always in the flesh as it were at any moment. So even that must be used with great care and great prayer and great humility. Galatians 6.1 says... You, if anyone is caught in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore one, such a one in a spirit of meekness, the restorer, lest you also be tempted. And that's very, and I think that's where church discipline often gets off track. In fact, church discipline in many ways, one of the reasons it's not practiced more is because it had devolved to the point, generally speaking, that the only purpose for it was to get rid of the troublemaker. Vote him out. And ironically, in our generation, what he does is he goes to a sister church. They send for his letter, and the church that's put him out just sends his letter along without comment as though he's a believer in good standing. That is not the purpose of church discipline, to transfer memberships. The purpose is to restore that member into a place of fellowship with the church with whom he's associated with. But this evil speaking Speaking evil of one another can manifest itself even in something as biblical as church discipline, all the more so outside of that. William Barclay, among other commentators, has mentioned the word here in regards to speaking against as the kind of speech that happens in corners and in muffled tones. It's when, a, it's when you gather off to the side. Notice here it doesn't say don't speak to your brother. Don't speak to your brother personally against him. It says don't speak against him. The implication is you're not talking to him as church discipline or accountability would require. You're talking to somebody else about him. And when you do that, you usually cloister over in the corner and you speak in muffled tones. Hope always had a little running joke from at work, but somebody walks in the room and she'll say, change the subject, they're here. And it's just a kind of a tongue-in-cheek little thing, but that's the way it works. They gather in corners and they speak in muffled tones and they say things in regards to another person, and they're usually not things that are designed to be helpful to that person. Rarely are they that. That's the kind of speaking that James is speaking of here. So there's a simple exhortation. If you give no other explanation or describe no other consequences mentioned here by James, you and I have to leave this place today with the mandate upon our lives to be mindful of what you're saying about to another person about a fellow believer. And it amazes me of how we have learned to tolerate that very thing within the body of Christ. 
We hear sermons about gossip all the time. But one of the things I like about this passage is it it doesn't let us get away with saying, well, gossip, it's one of those little sins. It doesn't let us get away with that. James brings it home to bear, and he goes on to speak about the extraordinary, extraordinary implications involved in something as simple as speaking evil of your brothers. As James says in this letter, and I quote often, Brethren, these things ought not to be. This ought not to be involved in the, in the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus said our very identity will be demonstrated to the world by the way we love one another, not by ripping each other apart. I read one, something this week that said our speaking evil of one another also gives occasion to the enemy. You go out and you trash the brother who has fallen into sin perhaps and without any desire to restore him and to see him reconciled and you begin to speak evil of him amongst your group and then it gets outside of that group and the lost world will look at that and say, well, of course that's what they do. They're no better than us. They're just as evil as us. And they learned about it because a Christian was speaking evil of his brother rather than for good rather than to see him restored. So there's a simple admonition here. In verse 11 as well, the second phrase there, he actually expands this evil speaking to even judging. He says there, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. He could be expanding that or he could be offering those as a, as a progression of that. He speaks evil, but in the evil speaking, he's making judgments in regards to his brother. So the simple admonition is, listen, brothers and sisters, we ought not to speak evil and be judging one another. Now, I know where a lot of folks go with that. They're going to say, that's exactly right, Larry. Therefore, don't tolerate all sorts of evil in the church. Embrace it. Understand that the guiding principle is love. Do not ever dare speak against another person, either by name and outside of their presence or even in their face because the motivating factor in the church is love. Therefore, we throw our arms open and we receive all things. Well, that's not, that's a violation of the greatest command, which is love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you don't do that, you're not going to know how to love your neighbor. And if you're embracing the sin of your neighbor, which is destroying your neighbor, and you're speaking evil of your neighbor all the time, then you are in violation of the great command that Jesus himself laid down. And in fact, the royal law. So it's a serious mandate for us to be thinking about. I want to just speak here in verse 11 as well of the massive implications of what he's saying here. And this can get kind of complicated maybe hopefully the Lord will help me to make it clear but I want you to pay special attention to what he says after the first phrase do not speak against one another brethren he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother here's the here's the consequences or this is the essence of what he's doing when he's doing that now I want to pause there to say that I thought when I spoke evil of a brother I was just speaking evil of a brother James is saying, no, you're doing something far more significant than that. Far more devastating, if you will, than merely saying a bad word about your brother. When you do that, you are doing what, he says? You are speaking against the law. And, and, and judges 
You are judging the law. So you are doing two things. You are coming against the law and then you are sitting in judgment upon the law when you speak evil of your brethren. Well, that makes it really serious. See, if we, if we just think it's just a slip up and a loose tongue and we said something bad about our neighbor and we go on without, without knowing the weight of that, then guess what we're likely to do? The same thing over and over and over again. And in doing the same thing over and over and over again and losing this foundational principle underneath that, then it becomes acceptable sin in the church. And so we gather in our corners and in our clusters and in our private gatherings and we speak evil of our brothers and of our sisters who are, by the way, co-participants, co-joined with Christ as we ourselves proclaim to be. I think when he says here, he works, he speaks against the law, I do believe he's thinking in terms of that royal law. You remember when they came to Jesus and they said to him, Lord, what is the greatest command? There's a bunch of commands, and we've had a bunch of traditions added to them, but Jesus, we want you to tell us what's the greatest command. Jesus answers very quickly and succinctly, and he says, the greatest is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and, your, and the second is likened to it, your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if you don't believe that's the royal law, but look, it's exactly what James says in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So it's clear that James, at the very minimum, understands the, the law to which you are speaking against when you're trashing a neighbor, or speaking ill of a neighbor, is the very law that Christ lays down here. That you love your neighbor or your brother as yourself. That's the royal law. Let me just say here, underneath that is the love of Christ. Jesus said in John to His disciples, Love one another as I have loved you. Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I'm going out of the world, and the world will recognize you as having belonging to me by the way you love one another as I have loved you. Love is the undergirding principle in regards to the law here. In fact, in many ways, the Scriptures are clear that as Christians, as those professing faith in Christ, the law has been fulfilled in us in our union with Christ. So he carries that beyond to the love of Christ. That's what's underneath of that. So that you're violating your, when you speak evil of a brother, you're in violation of that very impetus of the Christian faith, which is the love of Christ. Manifested in the life of believers by the way they love one another. Let me just say, when you're speaking evil of your brother and sister, you're not loving them. Yes, there are times when you might personally have to go to them and speak truth to them. And it's hard and, and, it's, and it's, it's uncomfortable for us to do that. But the motivation there is love. You see a brother veering away from the truths of God and you know that there is a shipwreck coming of their faith and of their life. And out of an authentic love for them, a love which you yourself have experienced from Christ, you reach out to them and you confront them. There is a love that demands that we speak. But it is not what he's speaking of here. This is a love that is in contradiction. This is a speaking that is in contradiction to that. 
Someone, I've heard people say this before. Well, yeah, I did say that, but it's true. I wasn't lying. Congratulations. Congratulations. Because even in your speaking of the truth to another person regarding your brother and sister, there is no underlying motivation to bring them back to, into the fellowship of Christ. You are simply exalting yourself by putting down a brother. And that, folks, is unloving. And that is in violation of the law of liberty or the royal law. When you do this, you're not just a slip of the tongue. You're coming up against the very law of liberty. The very law, by the way, by which you are rescued and brought into fellowship with Christ. That's what you are speaking against by doing that. And not only that, but he says the same thing here. Not only that, but now you have moved yourself by this confrontation with the law and your violation of it into the place of a judge in regards to the law. It's insufficient. It's not applicable to this person. Now you become a judge over that law. It's good for you. It's not good for them. You want to be loved. You're a recipient of the love of Christ. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you out of the love of Christ. You are a believer, but yet you are not, you are not willing that the same love be extended to your brother for whom Christ died in the same way. You've decided that the law of liberty and the royal law is applicable for you, but not for the one that you are speaking evil of. You remember the parable in Scripture that Jesus gave the man who had a great debt, insurmountable, would have never paid it in his own lifetime nor the lifetime of his children, never could have paid it. And finally he comes to the king and he cries out for mercy. Oh, forgive me my great debt. Uh, just give me time. And he even proposes that he will pay it back. The king, knowing that there was no way that he could ever pay it back, says to him, extends mercy and says to him, I forgive the debt. And in his celebration of such grace in his own life, he goes out and finds another gentleman in whom he had entered into some contract and owes penance in comparison. And he not only demands that he pays it, but he gets rough with him and manhandles him, demanding that he pays it. And when he can't pay it, he hauls him before the judges and brings him in before the king and says to him, I want this man to return to me my wages. And you remember the rebuke that this man suffers. Because the king looks to him and says, I forgave you all that debt. You got mercy. And you could have never paid your debt. And you turned around in the face of that same mercy and you went out to your brother and you demanded of your brother and there was no mercy whatsoever extended to your brother. You who have just received infinite mercy. We know the consequences, one of the kids this morning said, and they threw him into prison. They revoked his mercy. The king put him into the prison and he would not come out until every single cent was paid. That's essentially what James is saying. When you speak evil of your brother, the one for whom Christ died, you, the believer who is the recipient of an infinite, infinite mercy, will not grant to that brother that same level of mercy and speak evil against him. Are you any less worthy of having God's mercy revoked in your life? We are eternally secure in Christ. I believe that. I don't believe we're saved by works. 
But I believe the true, those who have received the mercy of Christ will instinctively recognize that his brothers and sisters are recipient of such infinite mercy and therefore should be recipients of the love of Christ as channeled or sent through their mercy to that person. Speaking evil of someone, of a brother or sister, he expands that even to include neighbor at the end of this passage is essentially to speak against the very law, the royal law, the law of liberty, and is essentially to sit yourself in the place of a judge of the, of the, of the efficacy of that very law. I can't think of anything more arrogant than to think that I am somehow worthy of God's mercy while my brother is not and is worthy of condemnation and even judging him. These are the serious consequences of speaking against one another. He says of them, if you, if you have in fact followed that course, if you have by your slander of your brother made yourself against the law of love, the law of liberty, and have seated yourself in the place of judge, he says to them, you are then therefore no longer a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. I'm going to judge my brother for what I view as his infraction and his departure from the law, while I myself, having in the judgment, remove myself from the law, which is the law of love and liberty. In the moment I judge him and come up against the law in regards to my speaking in terms of his life or in terms of him, I immediately cease to be a doer of that word, love one another, and become a, a judge of whether or not that's being done in someone else's life. I'm no longer a doer of the word, I'm a... I'm a judge of the word. That's, that's getting close to exalting yourself to the place of God. In fact, it gets so close that in the very next verse, he says of them, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. I think that's in response to what you have in essence done by speaking, this is stunning, by speaking evil of a brother or a sister. You have essentially denied the law of love and liberty and the royal law. You are refusing to abide under it. And by doing so, you put, actually put yourself back under the Mosaic law, which is condemnation for you. But you elevate yourself to the very throne of God. And now you will sit alongside God, who is sovereign and who alone is the lawgiver and judge and, and pretend the word used here is literally to become pretentious in regards to your judgment of a, of a brother. It's pretension because simply you and I are not God. I was reading a commentary this week and it was really stunning. I had to reread this a couple of times, but, but he made this comment. God is not a doer of the law. He's a law giver. <laughs> That's stunning. He was righteous before the law. The law flowed out of the righteous nature, infinitely righteous of God. God is not a law doer and a law keeper. The law finds its origin in God, His righteousness. He's not a doer of the law. There's one lawgiver. You may lay down laws. We have civil laws, and even as Christians, sometimes we, we amass things together. I was sharing with the kids, the, the, the religious leaders had tacked on some 600 additional laws to the law to, to make sure they didn't violate the law. 
And the most ridiculous I've ever read about was the idea that you can't spit on the ground on a Sabbath day, lest your spittle turn the soil over when it hits the ground, and therefore you'd be guilty of tilling the soil on a Sabbath day. You cannot bind the consciences of God's people by your own laws. Be careful, Christians, because sometimes the evil speaking of a brother is because your brother hasn't conformed to your notions of what it means to be a Christian. And there's no biblical root in that at all. Beware. Beware, because if you bind, try to bind your brother's conscience by your law, then you have set yourself alongside God as the lawgiver. You're saying to James, no, James, you're wrong. There's not one, there's two. He's better than me, but I have a place up there too. No, you don't. No, I don't. There is one law giver, and that is God alone. And having been the one having given the law, there is one with ultimate authority to make judgments in regards to what that law produces or the consequences of that law. He goes on to say, the same one can both save and destroy. Not you, believer. I'm not a lawgiver. And I'm not the ultimate judge. And I have no power to save anybody in this room or to make sure that you go into destruction. That is not within my prerogative as a believer. I am a recipient of the royal law. I am a recipient of the love of Christ while I was yet a sinner. And having been united to Christ, His perfect obedience which provided for the mercy is is. is cloaked over me in relation to my legal standing with God. So I am a recipient of this royal law. And how dare, James says, of the recipients of that love to, to not extend that same love to a brother who by his own profession is a co-heir with Christ. There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy I'm brief this morning, but I'm going to close with exactly what he says here. In light of that, if you have recognized that you are prone or have in the very recent past, perhaps even today, spoken evil of a brother, James would say, in light of what you're actually doing and in light of the fact that there is one lawgiver and one judge, who were you? To judge your neighbor. Let's see your resume. That's what I hear him when I read that. What are your qualifications, Larry? What, what, what merit in you? What purity? What wisdom? What infinite glory of yours would elevate you to the place alongside of God to become what God Himself is, Larry? Who are you, worm? to exercise such authority and influence and power in the life of another. That, that gives this whole gossip thing a serious tone, doesn't it? It's not idle words. I, I love in, in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul is rebuking the believers there in Corinth for going to, to the courts of law to settle disputes among themselves. And I've heard people cite that before, and, and they just minimize that to a simple rule. You, you're not supposed to sue a church. That's it. And I've always scratched my head. Don't stop there. There was a reason 
underlying why Paul said, you're doing wrong to do that. And it was this, the glory of God. Because in doing that, you're saying to the lost world that God has a church. A people redeemed unto himself. And the infinite God of the universe who is all-knowing and all-wise has not provided in that church men of wisdom who can decide between brothers. In fact, Falk says to the one who has been wronged in those circumstances, why not rather be wronged rather than give occasion for the secular world to diminish the glory of God in His church? You would be better off and God would be better served if you would endure the injustice brought upon you by your brother than to bring into question the glory of God and God's sovereignty in His own church. See, we dismiss so much stuff in Scripture. We minimize passages like this and we just say, well, don't gossip and, and, and don't, be, don't be judging your brothers. And we go away and because we haven't felt the weight of what we are actually doing and by implication what we are saying in regards to God and of Christ, we come back and we do the very same thing next week. And we think because we failed, we're just, well, I'm just not very disciplined. No, you haven't felt the weight of what you are actually doing. I asked the kids this morning, husbands, Wives, would you go to someone else in the church and speak evil of your spouse if they had acted in a way that, that you didn't like or that you even thought was sinful? Would you do that? And I asked, they said, quickly, all of them said, no, I'd use their parents. I said, would you do that to your parents? And they said, well, no, no, not at all. And I said, why? And they didn't even pause. They said, because I love them. They get it. That's exactly why they wouldn't do that. I don't want them to think ill of my mom or my dad. I might even recognize my mom or dad acted wrongly in that moment. But I'm not going to tell my friends or anyone else in the church, why? Because I love them. Kids wouldn't go, parents, they probably won't come to you and tell you you've done wrong. But what's right is the love is in their heart. They don't want their, someone they love to be harmed. They might even desire in their heart to see you turn your life around and come back into fellowship with Christ. But they by all means don't want someone else to make that more difficult for you. And so they, they say quiet because they love you. And I asked the kids, then why would you do that to someone other than your mom? And they didn't have to answer because I could see by their countenance they knew the answer. I don't love them like I love my mom or my dad. Here's the bottom line. You want to know why you and I are so prone to speak evil of our brothers and sisters? We don't love them. We don't love them. And we would say we do. But this is where I think we've lost sight of what the love of Christ looks like and what the love of Christ accomplishes in the life of a believer. It is a transformational love. And if you omit it, you're going to get church discipline wrong. You're going to get everything wrong without that love. And you're going to dismiss and tolerate speaking evil of one another from now, as the North Ireland will say in this, till the cows come home. You're never going to adjust, and you're never going to really love your brothers. And when we don't love one another, guess what Jesus says in John, the world sees. They see nothing of Christ because his disciples love one another. In fact, that's what makes them stand apart. But if we're talking and, 
and speaking ill of one another and not loving one another, why would we think we would have any effect at all on the culture at all in regards to the love of Christ? This is the shotgun blast I was speaking of. And as I was preparing, I could feel the pellets hitting me. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in this room as a professing Christian who hasn't been guilty of speaking evil of a brother or a sister. But I do think we've, let, we've done that and maybe done that multiple times because we've not understood the weight of what we are actually doing in that moment. Uh, the love of Christ is too glorious for us to squander in self-serving. It ought to be on display in all that we do. Stand with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as always and as your word itself says, it is a two-edged sword and it pierces deep and divides and, and discerns and discriminates even to the depths of the, of the human heart. And Father, I would confess that the pellets have struck me and I'm, my assumption is that they've struck every believer in this room. But Lord, I pray that that is to no, that is not to no end. I pray that the the sting that we feel this morning would be prompting for us to turn to you and to go deeper to the truth of your word and come deeper into our relationship with Christ that we might know fully Paul desired to know fully the love of Christ that we might know more fully Christ's love in our own life <clears throat> and to be humbled by such extraordinary love so much so that we would devote our lives to being a vessel or an aqueduct for that love to flow to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Lord, we ask your forgiveness and we ask your grace that we might live as we ought, according to James. In this time of invitation, Father, speak to our hearts and help us to respond in obedience, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.